This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your co-host, Kara Ongwele. And I'm Kyle Kondig, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball here at the Center for Politics. In this episode, we are going to talk about house races. So Kyle, based on results of the 2020 census, states redrew every congressional district in the United States with results molding the balance of power in Congress for a decade. With the finalized maps and looking at presidential vote share based on the 2020 election results, there are now 170 strong Biden districts, 75 competitive districts, and 190 strong Trump districts. Can you talk about how redistricting is shaping the electoral map for 2022? Yeah, redistricting is obviously really important. Now, it is also worth noting, though, that a district drawn in 2022 is not necessarily going to perform the way that the people drew it in 2026 or 2028 or 2030. Um, we saw a lot of that in the past decade in which um, because of changes in the electorate, you know, districts that were drawn to be safe Republican districts had flipped Democratic by the end of the, the uh the the, um, the the decade and and the same thing was true for some strong Democratic districts that had become um, Republican leaning by the end of the decade. So as much as we think we can predict how people are going to vote, we don't always we're not always able to do that. But um, you did have a, kind of a, a little bit of a decline in, in the number of districts that that vote. I'd say you know closest to the um, to, to sort of how the nation votes. Um, and you did have the parties employing some different strategies in redistricting. For instance, you know Republicans control uh, the redrawing in Texas, the second largest state. And what Republicans did there was instead of trying to necessarily maximize the number of seats they won, um, they drew a gerrymander for themselves in which they tried to secure as many seats as possible, um, you know, by making by making as many basically safe seats for themselves as possible. And that's part of the reason why the number of kind of strong Trump districts is up because in Texas, a lot of those districts were trending toward the Democrats over the course of the last decade and Republicans acted to shore them up. Meanwhile, Democrats in some states through their own gerrymandering power, um, they kind of sought to maximize the number of seats they could win in certain states. So for instance, Democrats in Oregon and Nevada uh, actually, um, you know, changed those maps in such a way that they created a few more competitive districts um, uh, at the cost of a safe district or two, but also uh, potentially giving themselves the ability to, you know, to, to, to win more districts in those states um, in, in most years. So there was a little bit of a different kind of philosophical thing going on between the two parties in the states where they control redistricting. And um, it, it sort of shows up in the in the overall numbers. But, you know, few things. We always talk about the sort of falling amount of competition in the House. And it's true while the number of competitive seats is declining, um, as Alan Abramowitz, our senior columnist, has written in the past, the number of competitive races is actually not declining over time, which is which is kind of interesting, a number of factors that go into that. Um, and also, you know, yes, gerrymandering does end up leading to the creation of a lot of uh, safe seats. But even if you had 
fair redistricting across the country and that fair redistricting means different things to different people, you'd still have the vast majority of districts being uncompetitive because there are so many parts of the country where you draw house districts that aren't really two-party competitive. You know, you're not going to draw a house map that has a bunch of competitive seats in very democratic New York City or Los Angeles, for instance, nor are you going to draw a lot of competitive districts in very Republican rural areas, you know, across the Great Plains and the Midwest and the South. Um, so, you know, again, we could, you know, it's, it's not like you, you could, you know, if you had a fair system, you'd have a ton more competitive seats. You'd probably have more competitive seats, but, um, most of the seats would still be safe. Um, for much of 2022, the generic congressional ballot, which is based on polls that ask people which party they would support in an election, voters have given Republicans an edge. Um, we're starting to see a shift um, that gives Democrats perhaps even a slight lead, um, even though uh, you note in the crystal ball that the generic ballot might understate support for Republicans. Can you talk a little bit about how the the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision and other factors might be impacting the shift that is reflected in the change in the generic congressional ballot? Certainly seems like the Dobbs decision at the very least has increased Democratic enthusiasm. I think it also gives Democrats kind of a good um, argument to make about what they you know, perceived to be kind of broader Republican uh, extremism, at least as they would argue it. And so, you know, abortion, it can be kind of the news peg that leads them to talk about uh, to talk about Trump or to talk about January 6th or to talk about other things. But I think abortion is is the key thing that sort of changed uh, in the electorate. And, you know, after the Dobbs decision, I was kind of waiting to see if like if we were if we saw some changes and, you know, we have seen some changes in the polling. Um, there have been a number of House special elections that uh, um, where Democrats have generally done, you know, better than Biden did in 2020. Um, you know, the Republicans were turning in, you know, better, better results in those kinds of races, you know, pre um, the Dobbs decision. Um, so I, I would say there's it's still I think it's kind of a confusing electoral environment because on one hand, you'd say, well, Joe Biden's approval rating is still in the low 40s. That's still bad. If you believe that's the most important number in American politics, and often it is, um, then you'd still say the Republicans are you know, totally set to have a good election. And yet there are other signs that don't necessarily uh, suggest that even even though I do think, still think Republicans are clearly favored to, uh, um, to you know, to flip the House majority in, in this upcoming election. It's just maybe it's not quite as much of a slam dunk as it seemed like it would, would be pre Dobbs. So we're, we're already starting to see uh, some Republicans scrub their policy platforms on their websites uh, and change their positions on the issue of abortion. What do you think Republicans should be considering as different segments of the electorate seem to be mobilized? Uh, look, I think pretty clearly Democrats are the ones who want to be talking about abortion. Republicans want to talk about other issues that they feel like are in their wheelhouse. So um, inflation problems, um, gas prices to the extent that they're a problem. They're not as gas prices aren't as bad at the moment as they were um, uh, earlier in in um, in the summertime. You know, crime, immigration, those are other issues where Republicans feel like they've got a strong hand to play. And so, you know, I think in in messaging, you know, advertising from the two parties, you may see them kind of almost talking past each other in the sense that um, the, the topics of the ads are going to be a lot different. You know, I guess the good thing for Democrats is that with abortion, they do have some sort of issue they can talk about as opposed to just sort of playing defense about, you know, some of these other problems that have been um, politically problematic for the White House, you know, kind of more of the, the, you know, the kitchen table issues. Um, you know, it also, I think, maybe speaks to the, the changing 
coalitions in the two parties in that the the Democrats have become I mean, certainly they were they were the socially liberal party before, but um, the voters that they've brought in, I think, in, in many instances, are, are people who are socially moderate or or even liberal who might have been Republican voters in the past, and um, a lot of uh, 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 you know working class, more culturally conservative voters um, who may have voted Democratic for economic reasons. Some of them have gone into the Republican camp, and so it's it's led to this interest, you know, this dynamic where. The Republicans may, or maybe Democrats, are incentivized to talk even more about social issues because the, some of the voters that they've brought into their party also seem to care a lot about these social issues. And Republicans uh, maybe are, are, you know, more focused on not turning off some people on social issues, but also focusing more on kind of um, bread and butter issues, um, particularly if if you know you've got. Uh, working class voters who have migrated to the Republican camp who maybe aren't really supportive of traditional Republican messaging on like taxes and those sorts of things. Um, but maybe they're also turned off to how they've perceived Democrats to have handled the economy or, um, you know, maybe they come down on, on the, uh, kind of the Republican side of the, you know, the COVID arguments from the past couple of years, um, you know, prioritizing basically keeping things open over the concerns of public health officials. So you can kind of, in the messaging, you might see some of this realignment that's that's going on uh, as well. Democrat Mary Poltola will represent Alaska's lone U.S. House seat after winning a special election that was determined by the state's new ranked choice voting tabulation system early last week. Poltola will complete the term. Um, she's replacing uh, Representative Young. And then she, Sarah Palin and Nick Begich will again face off in November for the next two-year term. What are the key takeaways from the special election? And maybe we need to call it a special, special election, um, both in terms of the employment of ranked choice voting um, as a new system in Alaska and, you know, the overall implications for the general election with Paltola's win. There are a lot of different ways to look at what happened in Alaska. You know, I, I mean, one sort of large takeaway or broader takeaway is just that, hey, you know, you've got a state that voted for Donald Trump by 10 points and historically is Republican in other federal races. And now they're sending a Democrat to Congress, which is a pretty unusual um, development. You know, Don Young was the dean of the House. He held that House seat for almost 50 years before, before dying um, earlier this year. And, uh, you know, I think... Uh, uh, that, that, that's just a, an interesting development. And it's not it's not a development you'd expect if 2022 was shaping up to be a Republican wave here. That said, the circumstances were also odd in that you had this ranked choice voting system in which Sarah Palin narrowly beat out Nick Begich for second place. Begich and Palin combined for almost 60% of the first round of voting. Uh, Peltola got about 40%. But then in the ranked choice tabulation, in part because Palin is just so broadly unpopular in the Alaska electorate. Um, Paltola was able to get over 50% uh, through a combination of, uh, of uh, people not filling out basically a second choice in the ranked choice voting system and also uh, grabbing a substantial number of voters who had backed Begich or one of the Republicans in, in the first round. Now it's possible that if this had been a standard election, you know, traditional election that Alaska had prior to 2020 and that most states have, um, you know, maybe we would have seen, you know, Palin beat Begich in a traditional primary and face Peltola in the general election. And maybe Peltola still would have won. Um, although you may have also had other third party candidates, uh, competing who might have taken some, t- taken some votes from the various candidates. So it's, it's hard to know, you know, you can only 
run the election once based on the system you have. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that you've got a pretty, you know, historically Republican state um, sending a Democrat to the House here, which is an unusual development. Um, but that probably was boosted to some degree by this new unusual voting system they, they have in that state. This week, you have changed ratings on Sabato's crystal ball for uh, a couple of house races. And in your um, in, in the crystal ball, you note that your interpretation of the races is that they have become more competitive. I wonder if you can um, share with us a little bit about what is figuring into your interpretation with regards to the competitiveness of the house races um, and your calculation of house ratings. Yeah, look, I think that, that again, there have been some developments over the past couple of months that I think have, have made things a little bit better for Democrats out there. We've seen that not just in the polling, which, you know, you, you can sometimes be suspicious of, but I also think some of the actual results, you know, again, we have these, um, you know, special house elections. Uh, there have been five of them since the, uh, the Dobbs decision. And, and, you know, I'd say the democratic performance in all of them was decent. Um, even though Republicans held some of those seats, um, you, know, you still have Democrats doing, um, uh, uh, in some cases, a little bit or even a lot better than Joe Biden did in uh, in 2020. And so you combine the polling with the actual, you know, special election results, and you, you've got kind of a more interesting uh, uh, electoral environment. And so I think that the general trend in our ratings prior to late June was that we were continually moving races in the favor of Republicans in terms of our rating, you know, pushing a toss up to leans Republican or a safe Democratic seat to likely Democratic, you know, that the the playing field was sort of moving toward the Republicans. And to us, that has stopped. And it's more of a, um, you know, a lot of the races that seem like they'd be competitive at the start of the cycle continue to be. Um, that's reflected in where the two parties are spending money uh, in their, in, you know, outside advertising. You know, a lot of the sort of usual suspects. You know, again, if you if the playing field was changing, you might expect to see ad bookings in you know, different kinds of districts, you know, more, maybe if it was a Republican wave, you know, maybe more heavily Democratic districts than what, we, than what we've seen. Um, but it, uh, um, it it feels like a bit of a stalemate right now. Again, it's a stalemate that I think fa- fa- favors Republicans, um, but, uh, but, but maybe not as much as, as we would have thought earlier this year. So in your new House ratings, you rate 215 districts as safe, likely, or leans Republican, while there are 194 rated as safe, likely, or leans Democratic. So that leaves 26 toss-ups, and you split those down the middle, 13-13, giving 228 to 207 Republican House, or a net gain of 15 for Republicans. What's changed where and why? Uh, there have been a few races we've moved toward the Democrats in, in over the last few weeks, you know, like the Alaska Senate race, you know, that goes from safe Republican all the way to toss up. And it's a pretty dramatic shift, um, you know, that, that I think, you know, shows us how kind of surprising Peltola's victory was out there. But um, I'd say more so than the ratings changing changes shifting, which hasn't been there hasn't been a ton of those. I'd say more like our interpretation of the ratings has, has, has sort of changed in that I was sort of anticipating that Republicans would win the bulk of the toss ups 
and that also that over the between now and November, we'd be moving, you know, kind of more Democratic held seats and toss up. And that's sort of the the trajectory of the election would move toward the Republicans, just like just like in 2018. I mean, the trajectory was was very much clearly toward the Democrats. They ended up winning roughly 40 seats that year. You know, we had them gaining about about 35. So we're relatively close, but we still undershot the Democrats to a little degree um, to a little bit. But but that's kind of the you know, if it's like a wave year, it kind of builds in that way. But this time, uh, it isn't necessarily building in that kind of way. And if anything, I think our assumption that the Republicans would win the bulk of the toss-ups, you know, we're questioning that now. And so we, we see maybe more of a split amongst the toss-ups, which would obviously lead to a more modest um, uh, Republican gain along the lines of what, what, we're, uh, what we're talking about. So this week, we have some actual data coming out of an NPR analysis about um, Trump's endorsements. And we know that, um, you know, their their tally finds that a vast majority of of candidates that Trump has endorsed um, won their primaries. But about three quarters of his picks are were incumbents who were already expected to win. Well, I wonder if you can talk about how you see Trump and his endorsements playing a role in House uh, races. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to to me, I guess they're they're uh, the 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 most high profile endorsements that I think have maybe made a difference have been in the Senate to me, like when Trump came out for JD Vance and Blake Master JD Vance in Ohio and Blake Masters in um, in 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 Arizona. Um, uh, uh, Mehmet Oz, the television doctor in Pennsylvania, you know, those are ones that may very well have been decisive, particularly Pennsylvania, given how close that race ended up being. But, you know, you also saw Trump particularly go after House Republican incumbents who had voted for impeachment. Uh, and his weighing in in those races may have been very important to the outcome. You know, I think about Peter Meyer in Michigan three, that's one of the districts we moved from toss up to leans democratic this week in part because Meyer lost his primary to a more conservative um, Trump back candidate, a guy named John Gibbs who had served in the, uh, uh, the Trump administration, you know, if Peter Meyer had won renomination, we would not have moved that race to leans democratic at this point of the cycle. I don't think. Um, so, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, it may be that some of Trump's endorsements have actually hurt Republicans to some degree in in, in a handful of these uh, these House races because he has uh, um, you know he's he's weighed in against some relatively strong at least in a general election sense um, House Republican incumbents who you know some of whom decided not to run for reelection or who uh, uh, or actually lost their primaries. You have been following the role of candidate quality this election. Do you see candidate quality having as much of an effect in the House races as you have found in the Senate or gubernatorial races? I think the general feeling is that candidate quality ma- probably matters less in House races because it's harder to get people to pay specific attention to who's running for the House in their respective district. You know, statewide races, I think, just get there's more ad money spent. There's more attention paid to them, um, uh, et cetera. You know, that said, I do think that that you you can point to a few of these races uh, and say that, um, uh, that, 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 you know, the Republican candidate quality may not be quite as good as um, it maybe could have been. Again, I, I mentioned that that the Michigan three race where you had Peter Meyer, the incumbent lose. You know, you did also have um, 
in Oregon five on the democratic side, Kurt Schrader, who is a kind of a, was a blue dog Democrat. You know, he lost his primary to a more progressive candidate. You know, if Democrats ended up losing that seat, uh, you might say that, that maybe Schrader would have won it. I mean, again, I think it's a probably an open question as to whether that, you know, what ends up happening there. Um, you know, so, so I do think that, uh, uh, I do think again, candidate equality, I think is always important. Um, I think it's probably just less so, uh, for the house races than for Senate and, uh, and governor's races. Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Listeners dig into the analysis on Sabato's crystal ball this week. Links are in the episode notes. podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.